0: Hello, and welcome to Songs for the Struggling Artist, the blogcast. This is episode 335. Happy New Year, everybody. My name is Emily Rainbow Davis. Thank you for joining me in these early days of 2023. May they be uh, good. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, today is uh, going to be a fairly long one. So, you know, you can probably see that by the numbers. I have not yet recorded it, but I, I can tell by how long this blog post was that this is not going to be a short one. So, <laughs> um, this piece was inspired by some events that happened in my hometown. And by hometown, I mean the town in which I grew up. I'll tell you more about it when we get to the end of this piece. Um, but this is this one... I was mulling over for quite some time and I had, I did, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a doozy. <laughs> so here it is. It is called the death of Gatsby and the scene. Around about the time I was becoming of age, my hometown was becoming a scene. Our hometown band was about to hit the mainstream and art was seeping out of every corner of the place. There were plays in bars, on the street, in art galleries. There was an artist who sold his paintings for $3 and also painted the walls and restrooms of restaurants all over town. His work was everywhere. It was a heady moment. Into that heady moment stepped a man who my friends and I called Gatsby because he was always dressed up like a 1920s gentleman. He had an air about him, a man out of time. I live in New York City now, and here you'd never notice this guy. He'd slip into some faux speakeasy, and you'd just think, oh, sure, one of those. But then, there, in my hometown, this guy was highly visible. It was a scene then, and Gatsby quickly took his place at the center of it. I was part of the scene, too. I was in a play at the art gallery with the man who a couple of years later became a rock star. I was in the play in the writer's apartment. I was in the legendary production of Hair that happened in the ROTC building. I hung out at the restaurants where the cool hung out, and I was in the Three Penny Opera featuring the hip alt-bluegrass band as the orchestra. I played the old mother at age 19, but still, I was in it. I was there but somehow I wasn't really included most of the time. And it wasn't just that I was young. Many girls much younger than me were seen on the arms of the cool guys at the cool parties on cool guys retro motorcycles. They were cool chicks. Then I didn't understand why I wasn't more in the scene. I mean, I wrote poems too, just like all the fellas. I played guitar. I was also obsessed with the beat poets. I also wore vintage clothes. Hats, especially. I was the one in cloches and such. I had a hot pink feathered one for special occasions. I was doing so many of the things the cool guys were doing, not because I was trying to be cool, but because that's just where I was at. And yet, Gatsby never spoke to me. He probably didn't even know my name. Decades later, in this era, I heard that Gatsby had been shot and killed by his girlfriend. The community heaved in grief. Many people I care about were devastated. There was a great mourning for the man, and also the scene of which he was once a big part. It is beautiful and awful and nostalgic, and odd, and endlessly captivating. I want to be clear that the facts of this case are more or less in, and they are tragic and sad. But I'm not here to talk about the facts of this case. What I feel the need to unpack is my own journey with both the news and the history of the scene, and how they intersect. My first response to this dramatic circumstance was to mourn with those who were close to him, to mourn the symbol and the past he took with him. I immediately assumed that the dominant perception that his girlfriend was crazy was correct, and that that was the whole story, because that's what those closest to him thought. But then the podcast I'd just finished listening to, Believe Her, came to mind, in which a young woman had shot her, abuser. her, an outwardly gentle man who none of his friends could imagine hurting a fly, but who routinely assaulted his girlfriend and posted his assaults to Pornhub. I didn't want to assume Gatsby was somehow involved in his own murder, but I also could easily imagine how he could be. I didn't really know him, after all. And once I'd thought it, I couldn't help searching for evidence in one direction or another. I looked first at my own experience with him, one wherein I was invisible, one where he spoke to my friends who looked like models but not to me, and I recognized a pattern of behavior I have seen over the years in other people. Those who don't see women as people are historically the most dangerous. I just read this article about the court case around the shitty media men list, and writer Claire Vay Watkins says... I am saying a sexist negation, a refusal to acknowledge a female writer as a writer, as a peer, as a person, is of a piece with sexual entitlement." End quote. This is what raised my antennae. Gatsby had a reputation for dating a lot of young waitresses. In a small city, Dating young waitresses is like dating models in a big one. It reflects an interest in aesthetics beyond other characteristics. And again, I want to be clear, I did not know this man. But it was easy to extrapolate, to guess, to wonder. Approximately 30% of the women in prison for murder are criminalized survivors. That is, they defended themselves and the state locked them up. Not a lot of women kill for no reason. The latest news suggests that this woman did. But I couldn't help noting other factors that made me nervous about just assuming things were as they seemed. Gatsby's girlfriend was a 38-year-old circus performer. He was a 53-year-old finance professional. There was a disparity of age, finances, and experience that suggested a power differential. Gatsby had a gun collection. One of the guns was the murder weapon. So I guess he had a loaded gun collection? Or at least a bullet collection alongside the gun collection? Maybe lots of kind gentlemen you know own a lot of guns, but in my experience, a man with a lot of guns is a man to be wary of. So Gatsby's crazy girlfriend murdered him, with one of his many guns and it is awful it is but it was wild to watch a community of people many of whom I used to know unravel around the situation apparently other women had noticed that it was mostly men who were openly grieving his loss Other women wondered, aloud, unlike me, if there could be more to this story than crazy girlfriend kills partner. One woman leapt to the defense of the grieving men, saying they were probably more feminist than a lot of women she knew. And probably that is true for her. And I'm sorry she knows so few feminists, but sorry, no. This would not be true for me. A lot of these dudes though I have a lot of affection for them, aren't demonstrably feminist. They're maybe not actively sexist, but I've not seen much feminism from them. Granted, I hang out with mostly feminists these days, so my bar is high. Just being a mostly nice guy doesn't qualify you in my book. These guys were the scene, Back then. And despite being a lifelong and active feminist, I would never have made the mistake of mentioning it to this crew at that time. Maybe things are different now. I hope so. The community, the one from the past and the one of the moment, were sort of running into each other. And from my distant post in New York City, far away from this, from my hometown, from my own nostalgia for that bygone Gatsby era. I felt as though I were watching a community car wreck in slow motion. There were a lot of heartbroken Gen X and Jen Jones men in incredible, wrenching mourning for their friend, and a lot of millennial women trying to sort through the mess, some loudly making assumptions, some defending, some grieving, too. Was Gatsby a gentle man or a closet abuser? The man was cool and very visible, so a lot of people had opinions. In the true crime podcast version of this story, we'd hear from all of them and decide for ourselves what we think. Having not had any contact with this guy in decades, I have no idea. He was an icon in a small community. That comes with some baggage, I imagine. This is the thing, though, that I keep returning to. I hung out with some of these guys in the apex of this heady moment in the 90s. Some of them saw me, and some saw past me. They didn't think I was cool, but women weren't really at the forefront of this scene. They were barely in it at all. There were some cool chicks around, though. The cool chicks then were a different sort of girl. A lot of them were very vulnerable in some way. I went to the house of one of these guys one time, and when we got there, there was a girl in his bed. He told me she'd just run away from home and had nowhere to go. She was in high school. He was in his 20s. There was a lot of this sort of thing in those days. The cool chicks drank a lot and smoked like chimneys, and... Now I realize that they were likely also processing an abundance of previous trauma. A girl like that might finally go crazy in her 30s. A lot of these guys wanted to help these girls, but they also wanted to have sex with them. And I'm going to guess that sometimes these things did not go sensibly together. Where do I fit these memories in the true crime podcast version of this story? What I keep returning to was how uncool I felt myself to be among a lot of fellas who were into a lot of the stuff I was into. As a young woman, I was not in the scene. But now I know what it feels like to be seen as an equal, to be genuinely cool to my fellow artists, to have a mutual artistic experience. The scene was a boys' club. In those days, only cool chicks were allowed. I literally cannot recall a single identifiable woman from this scene. This is not to say they weren't there. I don't remember everything. I didn't know everyone. But I was on the lookout. If there'd been a woman to look to in this movement, I'd have locked on like a lobster. My sense is that women just weren't really included as visibly as the men. If you were a woman in this scene, then, I'm sorry I didn't see you either. This has happened throughout history in art scenes. Remedios Faro was a surrealist. She was at the salons. You can see her included in Exquisite Corpses. You can see her work on their themes. She was in it. But read a book on surrealism, and she might only get a passing mention as Benjamin Perret's lover. She was in that scene, but never seen as an equal part of it. She and Leonora Carrington made their own scene in Mexico City, I think. They may not get a chapter in the art history textbooks like the male surrealists do, but they built their own world where they weren't the girlfriends of the cool guys, but the center of a magical realist world. It feels like scenes are for men and the cool chicks who hung around them. Being a part of a scene that was once a genuine scene was exciting. I do have tremendous nostalgia for that moment in time, but it is accompanied by a strange lacuna. On reading the newspaper article about Gatsby and the scene, I had the strange sensation of having been there, but always just out of frame. The play in the writer's apartment that Gatsby sent a typewritten note about? I was in that play. I was kind of the center of it. The band that Gatsby promoted? I was in those audiences a lot, and I was in that musical where they were the orchestra. I'm there, but not there. That's what it was like to be in the scene then. I could stand, center stage, sing my heart out and still be entirely invisible. It turns out that the crazy girlfriend shot Gatsby in his sleep. She shot him with his gun, called the police, and began live streaming. It's an awful situation. The end of the true crime podcast is just sad. It's just really sad. All it is is sad. But ultimately, this is not about Gatsby. Just like the great Gatsby is not really about Gatsby, is it? It's the world around him. It's the scene. And you know something? F. Scott Fitzgerald was in a scene. Maybe he was the scene. But my favorite writer of the period, Don Powell was born the exact same year and wrote truly remarkable novels and plays that were well-received at the time and never felt herself part of the scene. Not Fitzgerald's scene and not the theater scene, which Powell longed to be a part of as well. Read her diaries for lots of these sorts of moments. She was so much not a part of scenes that her work went out of print for a very long time. Meanwhile, no one gave a damn about The Great Gatsby when it first came out, but the scene grew in retrospect, and now few American students can escape reading it. Of course, I long to be a part of a scene again, but I want it to be one where women are full artistic participants and not just the cool chicks at home in the artist's bed. Thinking about Gatsby sent me down a lot of paths I haven't visited in a while. And I see them a lot differently than I did decades ago. A scene shifts in the rearview mirror. It gets both a glow and a sharper focus. I learned about Gatsby's death a few hours after I wrote about meeting Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I'd been thinking about one of the most famous art scenes in American history and about what it was like to be a woman trying to just be seen by someone from it for a moment. I was patronized by a man who hung out with the beats, but was so confident in his position in a scene that he preferred not to be called a beat poet. There was a chiming quality of these two things for me. These were highly visible men in artistically exciting times and just out of the frame, just a little blurry and off to the side. I'm sure there were many women who longed to be seen, to be heard, to be in the scene for real and not just there and out of focus. Good night, Gatsby. Good night, Ferlinghetti. Rest well, gentlemen. I'm so sorry for the loss of your loved ones. You made an enormous impact on a lot of people. Now, ladies, y'all want to start a scene with me? So those of you from Charlottesville will probably recognize that this is about Charlottesville. Uh, And very possibly those of you who have been listening to the podcast for long enough will remember that I am from Charlottesville. Um... I didn't feel like I wanted to get into the actual specifics, like I didn't want to name the town, not just because of the way Charlottesville has come to stand in for something very different than it actually is, and and it's sort of distracting, I think, for a lot of people, Um, but also just because I didn't feel like I wanted to talk about the specifics of this murder, um, this poor man who's dead. Um, but it, it is an incredibly compelling story. So if you feel like I I would like to listen to that true crime podcast, you can read some articles about it in local papers and whatnot online. Um, his name was Matt Farrell. Um, I have a lot of friends who, who really and truly loved him. I can't imagine how difficult it might be to like watch people project all over a situation, in the in the wake of something like this, anyway, my sympathies to all the people who knew him and feel the the keenness of his loss. So, um, the song that I have for you came was from that moment. Um, the band that was the orchestra for a three penny opera, and that Matt was the sort of. I don't know, impresario for. Uh, it was called the Hogwaller Ramblers. Um, I knew a fair number of the Ramblers, and uh, they had an album that came out oh, some point in the 90s, I think. And there's a cover that they did of You Shook Me All Night Long that I loved. And I feel like that cover was probably really influential in that. It's such a it's such a a a different take on the original song. And I feel like that taught me a lot at an early age. <laughs> um I I, I I like I had no interest in the ACDC song, but I loved the Hogwaller Ramblers cover of it. Um so I covered the Hogwaller Ramblers cover of <laughs> You Shook Me All Night Long. <laughs> I think that's I mean it's just what it feels like. It's really my own take, but you know, I don't have the fabulous um, fiddle or banjo or bass going. Um, but it is really I I know their version much better than I know ACDC's, so it's like a three layer cover. <laughs> so I'm gonna play that for you in just a minute. But meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please tell someone about it. Like, share, review, subscribe, all of those things. Um, And if you'd like to support it further, that would be amazing. You can become a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash emilyrdavis. Or you can do a one-time situation with Ko-fi or PayPal. All those links are in the show notes. And uh, Happy New Year again, I say to you. Happy 2023. Um, I will play for you now. You shook me all night long on ukulele, as it was meant to be played, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, enjoy. Enjoy.
1: was a fast machine, she kept her motor clean She was the best damn woman I've ever seen She had sightless eyes, telling me no lies Knocking me out with American thighs Taking more than her share, had me fighting for air She told me to come, I was already there The walls were shaking The earth was quaking My mind was aching We were making it You Shook me all night long Yeah, you Shook me all night long Working double seduction line. She's one of a kind. She's mine, all mine. Wanted no applause, just another course. Made a meal out of me, then come back for more. Had to cool me down for another round. Now I'm back in the ring for another swing. Cause walls were shaking, the earth was quaking my mind. ¡Adiós!